Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. And uh, we thank you just that we have the privilege to, uh, in honor of your birthday, that we would sit here and uh, read your word together. And Lord, that's no small thing either. And so, Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. And we just pray that you bless our time here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 1. I've got a new... um, appreciation for a book in the Bible that might become one of my new favorites. You ever notice that? You ever go through phases where you like, oh, I really anchor onto that thing, or I really... So I got... It's Second Peter. Uh, we talked about it on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. And here's one of the things I like about Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. What's Peter doing to those people? He's reminding them of what they already know, right? What are we going to talk about on Christmas? What you probably already know. What am I going to do? I'm going to remind you. Nate's asking me on Wednesday night, so what are you going to do on Christmas? I told him. He said, you already did that. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? <laughs> he said, you did that last year. I said, no, I didn't. I did it longer than that, I think. Uh, but anyway, it's a, it's, we have a Christmas story, right? We have a very familiar Christmas story, right? And to be fair, um, in my mind, I'm going to talk about some familiar things. And in my mind, I think as I've gone through the last few years, these are things that I've kind of put together. This sort of a collage of thoughts that have been pretty big in my heart for the last few years. And so Christmas might be an opportunity to uh, sort of put the collage together, hopefully, such that it looks like a uh, functional story that we can put together. Fair enough? So, last week, we, went, we had a Christmas program you know, really highlighted, I think, in a, in a beautiful way. Just Jesus came to earth and who he is and behold and his name and glory and joy and all of that kind of stuff as a result of his birth. Today I want us to look maybe at a subplot and a subplot that involves one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Anybody know who one of my favorite characters in the Bible is other than Jesus, of course? One of my favorite characters in the Bible? Give you a hint. Christmas story, and I don't really um, sort of my model my life after a woman. So, anyone want to guess? Joseph. Good, 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 good. Because in the Christmas story, that's just, maybe it's not too familiar, but let me back it down for us. We've got Jesus and Joseph and Mary and a bunch of shepherds and wise men and some other, but basically we got the, we got Jesus and Joseph and Mary, right? And so we talked about Jesus last week, and uh, ladies, you can study Mary. She was awesome. Um, and uh, I just think Joseph is one of those. I'll tell you what I love about Joseph is that uh, he just doesn't get a lot of like 
neon light headline news. Is that fair? In the scripture, he's, he's just not one of those like, you know, we don't, he's not referenced like Paul maybe or like Peter uh, or like one of the disciples. He's just Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, right? And, uh, and yet, there's just so much cool about him that I thought it'd be worthwhile to maybe talk about him for a little bit and then some other, and then I want that to maybe lead us into a, a couple other characters uh, not related to the Christmas story, and then we'll come back to, to Joseph. Fair enough? So that's the roadmap for today. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and I won't read you through all that genealogy, okay? But because, not because it's not significant, but because it is hugely significant. And if I read through that genealogy, I might, tempted, I might be tempted to derail on a tangent. And you don't ever want me to do that, right? So we're going to save the genealogy for another time. And uh, we're going to jump to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And now we've been studying the Old Testament, so you know what the captivity in Babylon is, right? Get that? Right? You know what it means to be the son of David. Because we read the Old Testament, right? You know what it means to be the son of Abraham? Because we read the Old Testament. Tempting, but I won't go off on any more tangents there. Verse 18. And this is where I want to kind of hone in on Joseph a little bit. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, we got to do a reverse. We got to do a mental uh, unwind. I'll just say it right here. We got to do a mental unwind because that is just so familiar. We know that whole thing that it just kind of rolls off of our lips enough that it really doesn't anchor into our head or our heart, right? Because we're sort of reading it from a distance right? We're reading it like, you know, like, I think of it maybe like you're, you're, you're flying in an airplane and the pilot comes on and he says, hey, down there on your left is Chicago. And you're like, yeah, it looks like Chicago to me, right? But if you were on the streets of Chicago, you'd be like, whoa, that's Chicago. You see what I'm saying? And sometimes we read the scripture like we're flying over it in an airplane. Is that fair? So let's put ourselves on the streets of, of Joseph's brain and Joseph's emotions and Joseph's heart and Joseph's life for a moment. So, God tells us, this is how, this is how it rolled. After Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Pause there. So, you've heard people say before, I'll say it again because I'm reminding you of these things. In those days, the betrothal period was kind of like our engagement period in our culture, right? But it was much more like they were considered married, right? Like if you were betrothed to someone, you were engaged, you were almost legally married. You weren't physically married, okay? 
but you were like culturally, spiritually, religiously married. You were, you were committed. You were, it was all done, right? Everything was done except the physical, okay? So at that point in Joseph and Mary's life, before they came together physically, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So, how often do surprises come our way? All the time? Not like this, right? But surprises do come, right? How many of you at this point in your life, I don't care how old you are, would say, so far life's turned out pretty much how I thought it would? Raise your hand if you're that person. Right? So far life's turned, I pretty much called it. Right? Nobody. Right? Is it a fair statement to say life throws us curves? Is it a fair statement to say sometimes life throws us big curves? Right? And so that's the groundwork I want to lay today. Life throws us curves question is, what do we do about them? Do we respond to them like Joseph? Or do we not? Is that fair? And what causes, what causes a Joseph to respond the way Joseph did? I think there's some tremendous biblical truths to unpack in that, right? So that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the plan. Paint this a little more clearly, if you will. Add a little color into the painting. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Now that means a couple of things. It means, like, wait a minute, he feels betrayed. But it also means this is a time in your life. I don't know if, if married people. During the, I remember Tracy and I were engaged, I think, to a day, exactly a year, if I'm not mistaken. And during that year of engagement, you know, we were giddy in love and all that kind of stuff. Just like, not as much as we are now, but close. (laughs) And, And we were, here's the point, we were planning our lives. You get it? Remember that? We were planning our lives. We were laying a course. We knew where we were going to go. We were pretty, you know, when I said, did it turn out like you thought? I mean, there's a lot that hasn't. And FYI, the part where we followed the Lord is way better. Maybe that's the tangent we ought to go down today. It's way better to the extent that we've allowed the Lord to drive the ship it's always way better anyway sorry that derailed me for a minute so back to Joseph this is a time in your life when you're making plans you're making plans that you think are going to stick 
You're making plans for, you know, you might have, you know, I don't know how it worked in those days, but Joseph probably had to, you know, maybe work extra hard to learn how to be a carpenter so he could provide for his family because he knows he's going to be married now. He's not got, he's going to have a family, Lord willing, soon, and, and he's going to have to provide, and he's, you know, he might have to sell some stuff, and he might have to reconfigure some stuff, and he's probably got, might have some, might have some extended family dynamics that he's got to deal with, and he's got, you know, a lot of this going on, and, and he and Mary are planning this all together, and they're in love. They're like two kids in love, and man, it's just, it's just like straight out of a good movie, and she's pregnant, right? Not only do you feel betrayed, your plans have been completely uprooted, right? Don't ever let that get too familiar that you don't capture what must have gone on in Joseph's mind. Then, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and again, we're calling, her his, we're calling him her husband because culturally and religiously, that's what that meant. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, this is curious to me. What kind of man was he? He was just. This is the first in, you know, in this chapter, in, really in the New Testament, this is the first character description of anybody in the, in the New Testament, right? The first adjective to describe a person is that Joseph was a just man. Now, what does just mean? Just is short for the word justice, right? Is that fair? Joseph was a justice guy. So, what did he do? Because he was a justice guy, he didn't want to make her a public example, and he, mind, he, he was minded to put her away secretly. That's an act of mercy. Is that curious, anybody? Because he was a justice guy, he extended mercy. We think of those two as antagonistic, right? There's like justice people, and there's like mercy people, Right? Joseph, because he was a just man, wanted to extend mercy to his wife, Mary. And what I think is the best way I can reconcile that in my mind is that perhaps maybe we see a hint, even from the very beginning here, that Joseph was so in tune with the Lord that Joseph followed after the character of God. And in so doing, he knew that God is the perfect balance of justice and mercy. Nobody, nobody can, can uh, nail justice and mercy in such a beautiful uh, package, if you will, as God, right? He's fully just, and he's completely merciful and gracious to us. And somehow he does that in a way that's super loving and all of that. And Joseph really is a human example of kind of modeling his life after that. I think Joseph was in touch with the Lord. He would have felt betrayed, as we mentioned earlier. Have you ever been disappointed by anybody? I asked you if, you've, if life's plan turned out according to all your plans. 
pretty much got to cross the board? No, it's not always turned out according to our plans. Have you ever been disappointed by anybody? Maybe even betrayed by somebody. Like kicked in the gut, betrayed. Don't think about it long enough to be bitter. But let me just ask you, how do we respond to that? Do we say, oh, I think I'll, because I'm a just man, I'll extend mercy to that person. That's hard. If you've ever been betrayed, you know that responding with grace and dignity and mercy to an outright act of betrayal is one of the most difficult things in life. Yeah. I can t- I, I've, I've been through it. And it's, 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 it's way up there. It's way up there. But it's part of our call as Christians. It's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. And it's part of who we are as Christians is the people that follow the Lord enough that we can respond to that with grace and mercy and dignity and let God work out the details. And the details often go for a long time without being worked out. And in, in the examples I'm thinking of, God's, God works out details, I can tell you that. God works out details way better than I do. And if I respond to disappointment or uh, even, even outright betrayal, the way my flesh wants to, it always causes more trouble. It always makes a bigger, uglier mess. And if I just pause, lay back, Pray, pray for the right response, walk in the Spirit, ask God to work out the details. He does it way better. He does it way better. That's a Joseph kind of response. He does it way better. I was talking with one of my daughters earlier about, I'm going to be a grammar snob for a minute. Can I be a grammar snob for a minute? Thank you. When did Joseph start? We said Joseph is a just, just man, right? When did that start? In this moment? No. Why do we know? See, you guys are grammar snobs too. You just may not articulate it that way, right? Joseph being a just man. Being is a word that tells us this has been going on for a while now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's grammar snobbery. It's, 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 it's no more complicated than that, right? You're, you can, you're all grammar snobs now, right? You know that being is a continuing kind of a word. Fair enough? This, puts, this, this brings in one of my uh, big soapboxes that's, that's hung over my head for the last several years. Some of you have suffered through me listening to me rant about it. Joseph, being a just man, tells me that he became, he started becoming a just man prior to this time. That would tell me that he was prepared for this moment. This is a testing moment, right? This is a difficult moment. You're betrothed to your wife, you're planning your life, you find out she's pregnant, That's test time. You've heard me, some of you have heard me say before. You know, I went to school for a while, right? And when I went into test time, 
it didn't matter what I was really doing that day. Test time is what you've been doing for the prior, well, it's supposed to be the prior semester, but what you've been doing for the prior 12 hours, right? <laughs> Through the night, right? Yeah. Students, you know what I'm talking about? Test time is a reflection of what has happened prior to that test time. I remember physical chemistry, final exam, 42%. And I'm here to tell you about it. Sean, you're pretty disappointed in me, aren't you? And I remember going into that thing thinking, some of you heard me say this before. I remember, I remember going into that test thinking, man, I hope they ask some rock and roll trivia questions on this chemistry test. I'm going to nail it. I really hope they ask some rock and roll trivia questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get this down. Anyway, they didn't. And at least 58% of the questions had nothing to do with rock and roll trivia. So the test is a reflection of the preparation. And can I just carry this story a little further to tell us that all of those moments that we would say are the curves of life, the times when life didn't go exactly the way I had thought, the times when maybe I felt betrayed, the times that I wasn't expecting, all of those, we could kind of put those in a big jar and say those we would call tests. And we would say the way to deal with those tests has to do with what has happened in preparation prior to that test. Fair enough? So Joseph, being a just man prior to this moment, was able to handle his relationship with Mary with tremendous dignity because of his preparation. But, verse 20, while he thought about these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, again, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You've got your plans. You're in love with your uh, fiancé, your wife. Uh, you feel betrayed by her, you're, you're going to put her away with an act of mercy because you've been prepared as a just man, and you're going to respond with godly dignity. But it says, while he thought about those things, I think we can throw in another character quality of Joseph. He's a thoughtful and contemplative person. He's not a reactive kind of a person. While he thought about these things, he didn't just go off half-cocked. He's thinking about these things. And what happened while he thought about these things? The Lord appeared to him and spoke to him. And Joseph was able to hear and recognize the voice of the Lord. Can I tell you this as loud and clear as I can? The voice of the Lord is real. But it's quiet. The voice of the Lord is real but it's quiet. Hearing the voice of the Lord is possible, but it requires discernment. It requires discipline. 
it also requires preparation. But I think it's critical for our Christian lives that we can hear and discern the voice of the Lord as Joseph did. You know, there's part of me that if I had to put myself in his shoes, just think about this. I mean, just these verses we've read, okay? We've read from, the ver- from verse 18 to 21. Put yourself in those. I mean, rewrite the story, right? You know, while Scott and Tracy were betrothed, you know, before they came together, Tracy was with child. Scott flipped out. <laughs> you can rewrite the whole story. Scott went berserk. Scott thought nothing except what was the next sentence out of his mouth. And while, he's thought, and, while he, and while he was busy flipping out, being a reactionary man, while he was busy flipping out, he, he got so tired of it, he fell asleep. And as he slept, the voice of the Lord came to him to what he thought, man, I had too much pizza last night. There was a weird thing that some voice came and said, uh, yeah, whatever, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to name him Jesus. And I'm waking up and I'm thinking, give me a break. That's how the story would rewrite if it was Scott. Thank God it wasn't. Right? And maybe you. Right? That's totally how it would rewrite with me. What an example. What a humbling example. So we got a guy that is okay rolling with surprises. We got a guy that's just, and he's been just. He started being just a long time ago. We got a guy that's able to extend mercy in a way that's not reactionary. We got a guy that's thoughtful and contemplative. And we got a guy, we got a guy that can hear and discern the voice of the Lord. This is a rock star of the Christian faith. Verse 22. So... All this was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I love the little commentary now. We're going to pause for a second. We're not going to talk about Joseph. We're going to talk about God. It says, Now this all happened that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so we might, another way to say that is, this, is, this happened because it was the sovereign will of God, prophesied years ago by the prophet. Is that fair? Is that a fair restatement of what he said? This is the sovereign will of God. Now, those of us who are, or those of you, who are sort of more theologically minded, you know, we talk about the sovereignty of God, which is a three—it's a three-dollar word for meaning God's in control, right? And sometimes we like that. We say, you know, I really believe in the sovereignty of God, and we maybe even embrace the sovereignty of God as a doctrine. And personally, here just for clarity and full disclosure, we embrace the sovereignty of God, but not to the exclusion of the responsibility of man. But as far as it relates to the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty means my plans need to be submitted to his. God's ways are not our ways, says the Lord, according to Isaiah. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Aren't we glad about that? 
right? I had a guy recently tell me, you know, he said, I'm okay. You know, it took me a while to come to this point, but I'm okay with the idea that God is God, that God does what he does, but I don't have to know all the answers. And in a lot of ways, we're all kind of like that, right? That's the journey that we're on. And my response to that is what I've heard pastors say over the years. If you could figure out all the answers, that means God is no smarter than you are. So get used to not knowing all the answers, right? In this case, all this was done according to the spoken word of God that was prophesied years ago. It was all part of the plan. But God's sovereignty means that our plans don't always happen the way we want them to or the way we expect them to. And the question is, are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with God's plans taking preeminence over our plans? That's a hard question. If we really are honest with ourselves, that's a hard question, I believe, for any of us. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So verse 24, Joseph did as the angel commanded. No dialogue, no yeah but, no help me out with this, no arguing back, no nothing except then Joseph did. Then Joseph did what he was commanded. Probably wouldn't say that if this was the Scott story. There would at least be some, some, huh? <laughs> right? Then Joseph did. Joseph was obedient. And then I love this. Let's not honestly... I want to handle this with dignity, but let's not miss the lesson. And he did not know her till, he had brought, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and they called his name Jesus. This is one of the most revealing, to me, one of the most revealing character qualities of Joseph in the entire chapter. Joseph was a man of integrity. What's integrity? Integrity means you do the right thing even if nobody knows it. Mary's already pregnant. Nobody would know. Right? Joseph's a man of great integrity. I would take this two ways. Number one, nobody would know if Joseph chose not to be honorable with Mary. Number two, people had already accused Joseph of not being honorable with Mary. You ever had that temptation? Like, people falsely accuse you? I mean, we talked about disappointment and betrayal. What about false accusation? How's that, how hard is that to take? That's hard. That's hard. And, one of the, and if you think about, if you've ever experienced that, one of the biggest temptations of false accusations, somebody accuses you of doing something, you're tempted to be like, fine, I'll do it. Right? You accuse me of stealing $20? Fine, I'll steal $20. Even though I didn't. Right? Joseph chose to be a man of integrity even after all this. Nobody would have known. 
but he knew, and God knew. So, Joseph's character was prepared so that he could handle the surprise with dignity. He was gracious to the woman who he thought had betrayed him. He wasn't overreactive, overreacting. He was able to discern the voice of the Lord and obey it, and he maintained a life of integrity. Amazing guy, right? So can I drive home the point with a couple other characters? Just so you feel like, like it was, you know, you don't want me to cut it off in a half hour, do you? Raise your hand if you want me to cut it off. No, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. I don't know. Turn to Esther. Turn over to Esther. I'll tell you what got me thinking about this was we were reading the book of Esther this week at home. And this kind of got me thinking about this whole thing a little bit. It's before Job. After Nehemiah. Esther chapter 5. I want to make the point that it's not just Joseph we're talking about. I think it's a pattern of godliness that we see throughout the Bible. And it's such a pattern that we need to model our lives after it. And that is this idea of being prepared for the tests of life. And being prepared with the character of God according to the tests of life. So Esther, just for background, the first four chapters. Esther is uh, currently uh, basically a, a Jewish refugee uh, under the um, kingdom of the uh, Medes and Persians. Uh, the king, uh, Hasserus, is kind of a jerk. Well, he's a huge jerk. Uh, and uh, because he's a jerk, he winds up uh, getting mad at his wife, the queen, and gets rid of her, and then gets lonely, needs another queen. So Esther's taken captive into the king's harem. Was that part of Esther's plans for her life? No. Through her big curve, right? Just like Joseph and Mary. Along the way, there's this wicked man, Haman, who plots to kill all the Jewish people. Was that a part of Esther's plan? For all of her people to be eradicated, including her? No. And so she finds herself, through a long series of things, being queen, right? But even queen in those days, in that kind of context, means uh, you're basically at the king's disposal. Is that what she wanted? Probably not. I mean, being queen is not like, it wouldn't have been like everybody wants to grow up and be queen when they become an adult. It's like your property of the king. And so the time comes when uh, Mordecai, her uncle, tells her, you need to go in and appeal to the king to save your people. And she's like, nobody does that. You go into the presence of the king, he kills whoever comes into the presence of the king. Unless, perhaps, he, he finds it in him to hold out his golden scepter and extend mercy to whoever it is that's standing in front of him. This is a test. This is a, one of those tense moments in your life, if you're Esther. And frankly, 
on the heels of a lot of tense moments in your life that would make you think, can I get a break? You ever feel like when you get these curves and these tests and these things all come your way, and after a series of 20 or 30 of them, you feel like, can I get a break? Right? Esther would have no doubt felt like that at this point. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Now we might read that and think, so Queen sits, stands there, waits for some ceremony where the king sticks out his stick and she touches it and then she's allowed to talk to him. It's way deeper than that. It's she risked, his, she risked her life after a series of disappointments with the boldness to go in and risk her own death to the point that prior to this, she says those famous words, and if I perish, I perish, knowing that there's a good chance that she might. And yet the king extends mercy to her. Why did the king extend mercy to her? I think there's two reasons. Number one, sovereignty of God, all right? Number two, could it be that Esther, prior to this point, was being the kind of person that would have such grace and dignity and godly character that the king might have even, even somebody as much of a bozo as this king was, would be impressed by. And he found, she found favor in his eyes. I think there's something to that. If you know the story, right, you remember Queen Vashti, the first queen, right? If she came and stood in the presence of the king, what would he have done? Oh, bless her heart. Held out a stick? I don't think so. Might have whacked her with a stick. But she would have been dead. Esther was prepared. And no doubt, lots of things went into that that we don't really fully know, but I believe a lot of it related to her character. Job, turn over to the right. Chapter 1. Verse 22. Now you know the story. Chapter 1, we get the background on who Job is. He's a godly man. And we get the background that Satan wants to uh, mess with God's people. And Satan and God have a conversation about Job and God says, all right, you can, you, can, you can mess with him, but don't touch his body. In chapter 2, he comes back and he says, you can touch his body. And that's when Job has all those boils and all that. But at least at the end of chapter 1, Job by this time has lost all of his uh, possessions, all of his children. And we read here, in all this, Job, verse 22 in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. 
Now let me ask you this. You lose all your possessions and all your children in basically a day. Right? How do you respond to that? How do you react to that? Would you say, in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong? Again, this was a test. And it was a reflection, not of so much of what happened in that moment, but as a reflection of what's happened in Job's heart prior to this time. Right? Well, what's happened in Job's heart prior to this time? Chapter 1, verse 5. We see that uh, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course, Job would, not, Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. Talking about his children. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, just thus Job did regularly. One thing we know that Job did regularly was he prayed for his children, even his adult children. They're all in their own homes by now. Job prays for them regularly. We know God's perspective on Job, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Imagine if God described you like that. Imagine if God and Satan are having a dialogue about all the people on earth, and God said, hey, have you considered this person? There's none like him. He's a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And because of those things... Job was prepared for the moment of testing that he would face, right? Just like Esther, just like Joseph. David, flip back to the left, 1 Samuel 17. Now, David's a kid at this point, a teenage kid, we'll say. Sorry, teenagers. David's an adolescent young man in the prime of his life, sort of. Sorry, older people. David's a young man, right? David's too young to go to battle. His brothers are all there. And uh, David's dad tells David to send some supplies, to, to take some supplies to the brothers in the, in the battlefield, which is pretty convenient because the brothers, what are they doing in the battlefield? They're all standing around. <laughs> There's no active combat going on. Why? Because they're trash-talking with some giant named Goliath. Right? And David catches this. So verse 20, we pick it up. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in a battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. 
And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, So what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Was David prepared for this moment? You bet he was. You bet he was. David had some relationship that we know that he knew who the living God was. And he knew that this guy Goliath is just trash-talking against the living God. We also know, he tells Saul, you know, later, verse 34, that there was time when he would fight the lions and bears. And we know from the Psalms, we don't know exactly when they were all written in David's life, but we know that there's, there's a character there of a guy that has sweet fellowship with God. Such that when he shows up and comes face to face with this giant, he's like, who's that punk that is defying the armies of the living God? David was ready for a test. He was prepared. So, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, appear, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took, him, took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph was ready for the curves of life. He was prepared because of what he had been being prior to the test. Right? Is there a possibility that in 2023 we might face a curve in life? Or is there a possibility in 2023 life might somehow give us a surprise or work out something that is not exactly what we had intended or maybe even what we had hoped for? Is that possible? It's very possible. So how do we prepare for life's surprises in 2023? Number one, read the Word daily. Can I tell you that sounds so simplistic? 
And it sounds so churchy. And it sounds like what the guy's supposed to say when he stands up here. But the Bible is living and powerful. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not just a history book. It's not just a textbook. It's living and powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. I can tell you, time after time after time again, I can read the Bible and see something that I've never seen before. I've read through it a lot. I see something that I've not seen before, and I see something that I, I feel like, you know, that just speaks to my... I, I know it was spoken to, you know, I've got to keep it in context and all this kind of stuff, right? You know what Philippians 4.13 says, anybody? I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? So, it doesn't say that, actually. But, so within the proper context... The Scripture speaks to our hearts. It guides us. It instructs us. It's the primary means, I believe, by which God chooses to speak to us. I mean, we talk about the voice of the Lord. Well, the most tangible voice of the Lord are these words. Are these words that have been given to us. That are alive and active. Powerful active today, relevant today. Read them. I believe that'll prepare us for the curves in life. Number two, have a regular, thankful prayer life. Now, you know, when I say pray, there's lots of ways that looks, right? We could say, now I lay me down to sleep before we go to bed at night, right? We can say, thanks for the food before we eat, right? But I think there's something, I think there's something that we often miss in life because we're too busy and too distracted. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody but I need to tell myself and you can once you guys hear me tell myself and if it applies if it sticks to you then let it stick I need to remind myself that my life with the Lord is conversational my life with the Lord is fellowship my life with the Lord is a re is a relationship right I mean, God gave me a, some tangible relationships. I have a relationship with my wife, right? We kind of, I mean, we're not always walking, but I think of it like we're walking through life. We share experiences. We share thoughts. We share struggles. We share emotions. We share concerns. We share bearing one another's burdens. We share bearing the burdens of others. We share life. That's what it means to pray with our Heavenly Father. We need to have that kind of walking, talking, 
thankful relationship with the Lord. And I believe when we do that, we'll be prepared as we develop that, that discipline. We'll be prepared to handle the tests of life like Joseph did. Number three. This is huge, and it sounds like I'm supposed to say it because, again, I'm the guy standing here, right? Maintain community with like-minded believers. Maintain community with like-minded believers. Proverbs says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. That is so true. I remember when I was a bozo, For those of you who don't know, I was, I was a bozo. I was, I was a first-rate bozo, like high school and college years, right? It's taken me 40 years to get out of it, right? But back in those bozo days, you know who I hung out with? You want to guess? Starts with a B and rhymes with, yeah, bozos. I hung out with bozos. You know who I was? A bozo. Is this rocket science? It's not physical chemistry, I can tell you that. I was a bozo because I hung out with bozos. And they were bozos because they hung out with me. That's how it works. Right? Read the Bible. Have a conversational prayer life with the Lord. And maintain community with like-minded believers. Maintain community with like-minded believers. I cannot emphasize how important that is for the vitality of our Christian walk and our ability to stand and respond as Joseph did for the tests of life. Number four. So these first three are pretty complicated, don't you think? Like read your Bible? Kind of heavy, don't you think? Wow, he's getting into some deep theological truths now, right? Number two, pray, right? Wow, he's getting into some pretty heavy, deep theological truths now, right? Number three, go to church. <laughs> wow, well, he's a pastor, he's supposed to say that, right? Number four, you ready? Don't do those things that you know will harm your preparation for life's test if you're really honest with yourself. That's equally deeply theological, <laughs> right? If you want to be a marathon runner, don't eat Twinkies. Right? If you want to be a marathon runner, don't eat Twinkies. I, I got to tell you, as a doctor... I hear some good ones. I hear people describe to me what they think is a healthy diet. And, you know, I've been there. But anyway, that's a tangent. Don't do the things. Okay, so you know, we've established, life throws us curves, right? It has and it will. Everybody okay with that? Okay. We're going to face those curves. Let's call them tests, Right? Everybody okay with that? Okay. As we face those tests, 
those tests, much like my chemistry exam, are a reflection not of what happens on the day of those tests. Actually, the, what happens on the day of those tests is really how we respond to those tests and how we perform on those tests is really got nothing to do with what happens in many cases, not 100%, but by and large has nothing to do with what happens on that day, but has everything to do with what happened prior to that. Fair enough? And so here's what I'm saying. Four simple things. Read your Bible. You'll be prepared. Have a conversational prayer life. You'll be prepared. Hang out with the right people, and you'll be prepared. I have a friend. He's a state policeman. He talks about, I always get it mixed up. I think he talks about the seven stupids. There's seven stupids? Five stupids. He talks about the five stupids. Now, he's a state policeman, so all of his patients, well, people he encounters are people who have done bad things, right? He says the five stupids. He says, if you don't hang out with stupid people doing stupid things in stupid places in stupid times, there's another stupid, I forget what it is, but anyway, just avoid those things, right? He says, if you, don't, if you just avoid those five stupids, you'll stay out of trouble, right? So these are not rocket science things I'm telling you about. As we face the challenges of life, as we face the tests of life, read your Bible, have a conversational prayer life, maintain godly fellowship, and don't do the things that you know are harmful to, those, to the preparation of those tests. And you know what those are. You know what those are, by and large. And to the extent that we don't, we come together in a place like this, and we learn together as we read what those things are. Right? Simple as that. I really believe that God loves to have fellowship with His children. I really believe that God loves to Remind us of who He is and how gracious He is and how loving He is and how powerful He is and how able He is to navigate us through this life. But I think our part is to have some preparation for it. Have some resilience. To be able to roll when the curves come. And it's a great life. It's a great life. Let's pray. Lord, thanks first and foremost, that you came on Christmas so that we could be saved from our sins. And Lord, secondarily, you give us these characters that we can model after, like Joseph. Such dignity, such integrity, such compassion, such grace. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. Help us to be prepared for the tests of life that we face moment by moment, day by day. Help us to be ready. Help us to cement those disciplines that cause us to be prepared for those times. And Lord, as we look forward to 2023, we look forward with great anticipation of what 
you might do in the coming year. We reflect on the past and we look forward to the new, knowing that your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. And so we can just rejoice in whatever you have for us and help us to be ready for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Merry Christmas.